Good morning. It's good to see you back. Glad I have not scared you off yet. Uh, we are in Second Chronicles 29, 30, and 31 today. That's a scary prospect for me, but we, we have a lot to cover in terms of physical text, but the implications that we draw from it are uh, fairly simple and straightforward, and this is the word of the Lord for us. So let's pray together today. And then we'll jump into 2 Chronicles 29. Father, we pray that you would favor us with the blessing that is inherent in your word. It's already here. It's available for us. Uh, You do encourage your people to discover it, to search for wisdom as for hidden treasure, to value your word and esteem the words that come from your mouth as gold. And so we ask for your spirit to give us insight this morning, that we would understand exactly what you uh, desire for us to grasp from this text and have the hearts to comply, that we would be eager to worship you and praise you because of your work. And so we ask that you would direct the words of my mouth and then the, uh, the thoughts that we all process so that we will handle your word well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I get kind of discouraged at trash sometimes, both because of the repetition of the whole process of collecting trash, but have you ever looked at how much you generate? And we used to recycle absolutely everything we could until they closed down most of the recycling centers in Greenville because it's not cost productive to recycle anything, really. And that that made me even more disgusted with garbage. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, I don't really want it to just go to a landfill, but here we are, even being as minimalistic as possible, uh, composting what we can, reasonably speaking, uh, still generate this ghastly amount of trash, and there's not much you can do with it. I mean, once you get pizza oil and grease on a pizza box... They tell you don't even recycle that because the cardboard, once it's stained, you, you can't, no, it, the, the greases in there are horrible and need to be culled out instead of recycled. We can't reclaim very much, in fact, in a fallen world. Take it from a, a situation of it's being disgusting, broken, repulsive, worn out, shredded, damaged, rusted, and so many other words that we could apply depending on whether it's food or clothing or uh, something made out of metal or plastic. It just wears out. And it is grieving to us. Of course, if we had to live near a, a dump, we'd be even more grieved. But we have a grief that is produced by a wayward, fallen world that can make restoration seem absolutely beyond reach, pointless, hopeless, Why even bother trying anymore? What's the point of resisting evil if evil always seems to have the upper hand? What's the point of trying to restore things when restoration is just always beyond our grasp? And anybody who promises otherwise is making something up, probably to cash in on some kind of green technology or something new. Today's lesson actually enters into our lives with a statement of hope, a hope that we need to hear because of the nature of restoration and how impossible it seems. And so I'm actually going to start at the end, right at the end of chapter 31, and hold out a verse of hope, 
and then dial back and say, how did the people of Judah get to that place of hope? Right at the end of chapter 31, their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. The fact that God would hear sinful fallen creatures at all is hope. The fact that he would listen and their prayers would enter into, and it admits the passage doesn't pull punches, it's his holy habitation. A holy God in a holy place entertaining the prayers of unholy people and accepting them in some way is our hope of restoration in a fallen world. So the passage today calls us to believe that because revival produces a cascade of restoration, commit to the Lord. And that requires that we actually believe that personal revival can produce a cascade of restoration that has some benefit. No, I can't. Well, there are processes. There are chemical processes by which I can get rid of rust but we can't do it on a large scale in a cost-efficient way. But there is a way to get rid of, as it were, the rust of the human heart and the rust of culture that surrounds us and the rust in our children's lives and the rust in our family and friends' lives and the decay and the degradation that happens normally in engaging in life in a fallen world. We have a lot of experience with cascading events. I, I looked for a bunch this is a terrible example, I know, but yeah, I looked up some of the nuclear tests in uh, the South Pacific atolls. This is actually the Castle Bravo test. The scientists who set up the Castle Bravo test believed that uh, the explosion would yield about four megatons. It yielded about 14. They, they, they were off just by a magnitude of 3,000% or whatever that is, just ghastly amount. Uh, it was devastating. The Castle Bravo test was one of the tests that made uh, America start reconsidering what are we, what are we really going to do long term about nuclear testing because the fallout, the radioactive fallout from this test actually landed in Japan, uh, Australia, parts of America. It was a massive test. Uh, there were some Japanese fishermen that were hundreds of miles away from the test fishing and uh, some snow started falling out of the sky on them. And uh, very shortly thereafter, they gave all the evidence of severe radiation burns. And at least one of them died within six months, even hundreds of miles away from this test. Well, that's a cascade. Well, what, what is the cascade? Well, you have to ram enough uh, nu uh, nuclear fissile material, whether it's uranium or plutonium, uh, together so that uh, even the process of ramming it together is going to eject enough neutrons, neutrons that can hit other surrounding unstable nuclei and split them, generate enough neutrons to hit others and, and keep this cascade going until you run out of unstable material, which we're very fortunately, most of our elements are stable or most of the ones that are uh, around us that are in high proportions in the earth. Otherwise, a chain reaction would be unstoppable and would consume the entire earth. Uh, let's dwell on something that's a little less uh, depressing. Just barely. A cascade. Have you ever knocked a cup off the table? Coffee is, is when it's really a crisis, because, both because of the staining, but because of the loss of the coffee, right, early in the morning. Um, and, and as it goes hurtling through the air, you think, there, what, what do you do to stop it? 
if I try to catch the cup, I'm probably actually just going to bat it even further away and it's going to smash on something. I'm going to put more uh, you know, angular momentum, impart more of that to the cup so it is spinning. But catching it is unlikely. It's hot, so I, maybe I better not catch it. And a, a cascade occurs. A lot of other events are going to flow from that. Cleanup time, frustration, or this one. A number of years ago, I was cutting some bushes and had a, not, not this kind of a ladder, this is just a ladder that's leaned up against a house, but I had an A-frame ladder set up, tried to get it as stable as I could. But the ladder walked, you know, as you're reaching out over bushes, I was about eight to 10 feet off the ground, and the ladder legs started walking a little bit. I'm like, well, you know, I've painted for decades, no big deal. Then they closed up. And as you're flying backwards through the air, you think, hmm, I wonder, it, things that really do go into slow motion, right? D- Dave, do you ever have any uh, construction experience? <laughs> no, none of those. You're, like, you're flying backwards through the air and you're just thinking, there's nothing you can do to stop a cascade of events. You just have to wait until they kind of fully, and you're, you're grasping for things, but it's a brick wall on this side, and I'm not Spider-Man. And there are bushes on this side that are prickly, and there's nothing I can do to stop the event. It's going to flow through to its natural outcome. There are spiritual cascades. We see lots of evil ones, and that kind of cements in our thinking that cascades tend to be bad. They tend to be problematic and destructive. What is the testimony of this passage, though? And I know those of you who listen online later cannot see this, but I've highlighted key words throughout each section because as God unfolds this passage for us through the mouth and the pen of the chronicler, each section dwells on a series of words that point to the theme of that section that undergird the theme of the whole. So 2 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he, Hezekiah, commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king in the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also, and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David the king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpets sounded, and this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. 
And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped. The passage begins with a testimony for us that revival starts with repentance. Oftentimes we seek revival. Lord, please, please, please bring revival somewhere way out there on the left coast. Start revival in our land. Revival starts with repentance. And Hezekiah began it right here in himself. The testimony of the passage is that revival or repentance as part of revival is intentional and costly in the first couple of verses. Look at the intentionality. Hezekiah rose early. He already had a plan in mind and he was going to carry it out. He gathered the officials. He went up to the house of the Lord. There was a process that he was going to execute. And then the description of what they do next is exactly what the law required. He's not trying to forge or form a repentance that's of his own imagination, but rather repent truly, which involves submission to the Lord in the first place. And yet the repentance itself is incredibly costly to the people. How much does a bull cost? Any farmers? I had to do some research. Even though I'm from farming stock, my my mom grew up on a farm, dairy farm in northern Indiana, and we love cows and things like that, and my daughter wants me to, my youngest wants me to moo every time we pass a cow. And it's just, it's just kind of a thing we've got going internally in the family, you know, inside joke. But she wants me to, to practice my mooing and things like that. But I had to look up how much a cow costs. A, uh, an adult cow is somewhere between $3,000 and $5,000. That's a lot of money. Sheep and goats, substantially less, but uh, assuming that they are a decent breed, are probably going to be 300 to $500, somewhere around that range. Which means that the people are offering here, Hezekiah specifically is offering to the Lord something in excess of $35,000 worth of animal sacrifices. And what's true of the burnt offering of a sin offering? you got to remember all the way back to what Dr. Yeagley's covered in the spring semester of several of the past and preceding years. But what is special about the sin offering, burnt offering? The priests don't take a portion of that for themselves. They slaughter it and they burn it up. And you're like, what an incredible waste. You you stick $35,000 worth of animals essentially on an altar and you consume it completely. You burn it up altogether. Couldn't you have allowed this to go to the poor? Couldn't you have sent it for this cause? We sound like Judas now, don't we? No. Repentance is costly. Repentance means we have to give up something that is actually marring our lives or disfiguring and defiling it. And yet repentance is the first stage of revival. There's not going to be a chain reaction or a cascade of good events that flow from our lives into the lives of other people around us and then into society at large if we're not willing to repent. Repentance is intentional and costly. Repentance recognizes a substitute. Verses 23 and 24, they lay their hands on the head of the goats. They have to have a substitute. Why? Because $35,000 worth of animals still can't deal with our sin problem. Not really. 
the cost or the price financially trying to buy God off, to put it in, in portrait. That's not what they're doing here. But if that were their attitude, it is dismissed entirely and done away with by the fact that we have to lay our hands on the hands of the animal and recognize the animal is a substitute and it is death that is required. And the repetition of sin offering, sin offering, sin offering all through this section shows that we have to have a replacement and looking at Christ is never wasted, isn't it? I mean, anytime we look at Jesus and actually dwell on the cross with any kind of attention and care, we're humbled again because I don't deserve that. I don't deserve anyone to stand in my place, and especially not the Holy One of God. Why would he do that for people such as we are? Repentance is required for worship, verses 35, or sorry, 25 to 30. As they repent, as they offer these sin offerings, they begin singing and rejoicing. They bow down and worship. That is, it turns their hearts back to the Lord even more intensely and more directly. As you begin to repent, you cannot engage in the process of repentance, of seriously looking at your sin with any kind of sobriety, with any kind of of marking it out and saying, I have done this, and I have done this, and I have done this yet again. And then looking at the substitute that we have in Jesus Christ without there likewise, even with the horror of the sin and the disgust and guilt feeling, without some kind of praise beginning to well up in you. Because if Christ has redeemed me from this and has redeemed me iteratively, died once for all, but my sin continues. Glory to God for that. Genuine repentance always draws people to worship. Always draws people to to honor the Lord who is willing to send his son to die in our place. But this is a cascade. I love cascade. I've always been a fan more, instead of monolithic waterfalls, you know, I, I would like to see Niagara Falls someday, but I've seen plenty of pictures of it. I'm like, well, that's, that's really fascinating. But I like cascading waterfalls, ones that dance down a, a long hill slope. Many of the largest waterfalls in the world actually go through a whole series of these. Um, but can you stop a waterfall? And I, I don't mean can you dam it further upstream. And stop it in that way. Can you stop a waterfall? I remember once as a child when the uh, bathtub was running, you know, filling up the bathtub. We always wanted it as deep as my mom would allow it. You know, like it's, it's better if you can submerge completely when you're like five years old. Um, but I remember once trying to, I, I'm like, well, this, I, I bet I could stop that. You know, it's pouring out water from the spigot. So what do you do? Jam your hand up against it and, and promptly spray all over the entire room and you're like I'm not going to try that again because you get <clears throat> uh, appropriately addressed from the parents you know they say Let, let's not engage in this kind of you can't stop a cascade like this spiritually speaking once repentance genuinely begins happening in people's hearts something else is going to entail something else will flow from it And chapter 29, verses 31 through 36 begin addressing the next stage. 
Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings. And you say, wait a minute, they've already been offering things. Yes, but did you notice they were in sevens? Because the law didn't specify that the burnt offering, the offering that was supposed to purify for sins, is ongoing. The point was that it was a specified sacrifice. Seven bulls, seven sheep, seven goats. It's a limited amount, I think, because God wants to circumscribe that and say, the sin offering, that which is the remedy for our sin, is God-ordained. But what follows from that, the kinds of offerings we're going to offer later, flow from our heart, and they can be as free and open and unbounded as our resources are, and the joy of our hearts overflowing is willing to give to God. But I've interrupted myself. Hezekiah said, you've consecrated, come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings that the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 10 times what we saw before. A hundred rams, none of those were mentioned yet. They're more expensive than mere sheep. 200 lambs, all these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated offerings were 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. And the priests were too few and could not flay all the burnt offerings. So until other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, had to help them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. What does this tell us? Real repentance generates thanksgiving. Have you noticed that thanksgiving, real thanksgiving, seems a bit exorbitant? Remember the story of the the woman who's forgiven a lot in Luke's gospel? And she comes in and says she has an alabaster. That just means it's made probably out of stone, costly stone. And inside is at least a year's wages worth of ointment. And she shatters the flask, probably breaks the neck off of it, and pours it on Jesus' feet. (laughs) Seriously? An entire year's wages. Anybody want to give up a year's wages just to... uh, buy me perfume. Please don't. I'm allergic to most like colognes and things like that. I always have been. But you go, it's just, it's poured out. It's gone. Even the aroma itself, as as pervasive as it might be, is only going to last for hours to days. That's exorbitant. In fact, the disciples reacted that way. And the Pharisee who's watching it reacts that way as well. It's incredible waste. And of course, the Pharisee concentrates on the fact that it's a sinner that is touching Jesus. And if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him. So Simon, I have something to say to you. And he gives a little story, a little parable of forgiveness. Who, who is most eager to offer gratitude and thanks? Oh, the person who's forgiven more. Yeah. You can tell real repentance has happened when we have considered the sin in our heart enough to be overflowing with thanksgiving to God. The sin is taken care of. 
The sin offerings have already been offered. So let's all pack our bags and go home. And instead, the people of Judah are like, no. The enthusiasm is building as they deal with their sin. And the joy is starting to well up as they eradicate sin in their lives. Too long they have walked like Ahaz walked, the king prior, who led us in unrighteousness. And we have offered sacrifices to false gods. And now our hearts are turning to the Lord. And again, this joy begins to well up and overflow. Thanksgiving reflects blessing. Verses 35 and 36. Now, note that due to the pressures brought on Judah, uh, did you notice the passage, what the scripture said, that the service of the house of the Lord was restored. Hezekiah and the people rejoiced because God provided for the people. What does that mean? Well, at least in part this, remember just a few weeks ago when we addressed Ahaz's life and his wickedness that God began bringing all the surrounding nations from every side against Judah. Israel attacked Judah. Syria attacked Judah. Assyria attacked Judah. Edom attacked Judah. The Philistines attacked Judah. And there is depredation and there's destruction and there is loss, and there is ruin. Well, when you're losing all those things, you're losing your resources, not just the silver and gold, but you're losing your animals, your livestock. They're being killed and or driven off. Somehow God provides for the people, and the passage just leaves us hanging. And as a, you know, both an inquisitive mind, I think, and uh, I just, I would love to be there. I'm like, how, Lord, did you do this? Where did all these bulls and sheep come from? What had the Lord done leading up to this moment to provide for the people so that they had access even to be able to give exorbitantly like this to the Lord? Uh, Again, given the destruction that had happened just shortly before. God blessed. Even without the people's ability to arrange for such, such giving, God provided for their gifts. And the text is silent, but take seriously the fact that God provided for them. Got to keep moving. There's so much here. Second Chronicles verse third, uh, chapter 30, go into the next chapter. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and all his princes and all the assembly in, in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. By the way, when is it supposed to be kept? The first month. And, and there's a little problem here. Do we get to just adapt, you know, theology as we need on the fly? Some people who did that before, like Nadab and Abihu, did not fare very well. But then again, Nadab and Abihu did so out of the obstinacy of their heart and out of innovation, not out of genuine worship and submission. Here the people are going, we've missed the first month. In in the process of our worship of the Lord, we've missed the opportunity. Does God want us to wait 12 months and try to redo this whole thing? Or does the Lord want us to worship him? albeit out of order, needing even a sin offering because we've disobeyed him, yes, but does he want us to worship him? Well, continue here. They could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem, and the plan seemed right to the king. 
and all the assembly. So they made a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, that little tip way down in the south, not, not on the, the, the um, Red Sea, well above that, but the southern portions of Judah, all the way up to Dan, and Dan is not even Judean territory. It's all the way up in the north of Israel. But the proclamation goes out that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who are faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Few people left in the land know very well the destruction that's come. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Here's the testimony that we have. Repentance in the process of revival, has led to thanksgiving. Thanksgiving cannot be contained or bottled up. When you're really grateful for something, what do you want to do? Share it. Tell somebody else. I went to my box. Here, let me tell you one. It just came to my mind right now. I had forgotten this for decades probably. When I was a grad student, Uh, shortly after my wife and I were married. We had absolutely nothing. I made $55 every two weeks, okay, to pay for all that we needed to to buy in life. That was life on a shoestring, truly. Now, we didn't lack. We were in in fine shape. But there were a few things that were troubling, like car insurance and car taxes. I'm like, why do we have to pay taxes on something that I bought years and years and years and years ago? Like, does the government own the car and I'm just renting it each year from them? I don't know. Um, Maybe we can ask some of our politicians in, in our church body that. But it was difficult. Life was difficult. And as big bills approached, we, we did struggle at times. And one day I went to my box and there was a, a, a funny handwritten note with $400 in cash, like, and the note was taped and taped and taped, like more taped than like a whole roll of tape all around it. But the note just said, hey, you know, we watch you, you're serving the Lord, and suspect that you have some needs in the process of service. And like, oh, you know, Lord bless whoever gave this to us. We desperately needed this at this time. And then we promptly go and tell everybody, not the other graduate assistants to make them jealous, but, you know, everybody else that I could tell, like, look at what God has done through his people for us. Well, do you realize what this is doing 
Israel has rejoiced, or Judah has rejoiced and given thanks to God. So now, thanksgiving generates an outgoing invitation, calling other people to share in the joy. An invitation itself provides access. An invitation provides access. Without an invitation, you don't go to the wedding, right? Yeah, hi, I showed up just for the cake. (laughs) And the bride and groom are like, uh, it's a little awkward here because we didn't plan on you. We didn't invite you. Who are you? The invitation grants the access. Now, put yourself in Israel's position, not Judah down here, in Israel's position. It has been hundreds of of years since we have gone up to Jerusalem. Right off the bat, Jeroboam I split us away from Judah. He immediately launches innovative worship by putting a golden calf in Bethel and in Dan, right? And all between then, there has been hostility and friction between north and south, so that if we go south, we're going to be viewed as traitors, you know, what are you going south for? You know, you're supposed to stick with the worship that we, the kings of Israel, have instituted. And you're in danger of your very life if you go down to Jerusalem. Are the Israelites, and now God has brought judgment on the land so that the Assyrians have deported most of the population, and there is shame, and there is degradation, and there is loss, and there is poverty. How do you feel as an Israelite? in regard to worship at the temple of of Judah in Jerusalem. I can't go down there. I can't go down there. It's been too long. There's too many hostilities. It's too much bad blood. Besides that, you you know what the Judeans are going to think about us. Oh, you're part of that group that God's already wiped out because you were so wicked. The scorn, the opprobrium, just the sheer disappointment of heart. There is a, going to be, we're going to toss our icon here. There's going to be a sense of despair and discouragement, despondency, no matter what else happens. Without an invitation, they're not going to come to worship. And yet, isn't this just like our God? where he constantly comes to the outcast and the downtrodden and says, you, you come. Well, we invited a bunch of people to the feast and hardly anybody showed up. Well, then go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Grab the poor. Grab the drug addict. Grab the guy who's in prison. Tell him that the invitation stands open to him. Oh, but he's going to feel bad. Of course he feels bad. That's why he needs to hear the invitation. Because otherwise he will sense that he is cut off by his wickedness. Of course he doesn't have any right to approach me. So invite him to approach. A people of God who are in the process of repenting start giving thanks for what God has done in their own heart. And if we really sense our sin, that gratitude just boils up or bubbles up in our hearts and starts overflowing to invite other sinners who are just like us to draw near to God as well. An invitation urges a response. 
Quotations are a bit pushy, aren't they? That RSVP, I'm, I'm a little convinced that the V stands for violence, but I'm not sure how it plays into things, because like, if you don't answer this, we are hunting you down, and you are, you know, just, they're a little pushy. Because with the invitation in hand, you know, I, I do this sometimes because like, oh, family plans aren't congealed yet. I'll put this on this desk right here, you know, separate things around it. And so we'll see it periodically and we'll remember it. And then life get, starts happening and other things, mail and, and bills and lots of things get thrown on the desk and the invitation sifts to the bottom. And you're leafing through things one day and you hit the invitation and you go, and it's pushy, isn't it? Hey, remember me? I told you to come. Get with the program. Well, that's exactly what Hezekiah is trying to do, isn't it? Take the couriers by command of the king. I want you in every single village, in every single town square, crying out, push people to come. Invite them. Make it really clear. Come. Come to the Passover. Come celebrate. This is, and look at what he calls him, Israel's God. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac. And he could have said Jacob there. And he says, Israel. You guys are Israel. Come. And, you know, we understand that it's, we're not going to get everybody in. The invitation draws participants, not everybody. A lot of people RSVP no. A lot of people don't RSVP at all. In this case, a lot of people mocked the couriers to scorn. Isn't that just like the hardness of the human heart? Invitation stands open, instead you just thrust it away. But some. But some. And that phrase, but some, echoes all throughout Scripture, doesn't it? Jesus in the Gospels. Broad is the way. Huge is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way. Small is the gate that leads to everlasting life. Few there are that find it, but some. And so the responsibility that we have in overwhelming thanks to God based on the repentance and then the restoration that he's already begun to grant is not to determine who accepts the invitation. It's get the invitation in the mailbox. Even if 99% don't accept it, but some of Judah, or sorry, Zebulun and Manasseh, and Ephraim, some humbled themselves and came. What a day of joy that would be. Because now you actually have so much healing going on. It's a healing drawing near to God. It's a healing with your, your cousins, <laughs> your northern cousins, who've been away from the Lord for so long, and we invite them back in, and they show up, and they're family. The invitation urges a response. The ur- invitation draws participants. Hezekiah's faithfulness, one man's insistence on repentance, draws other people to worship God as well. Let's continue. Many people came together. Many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. A very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kedron. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month and the priests and the Levites were ashamed 
So they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their custom posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priest threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. There were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. They ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. The accepted invitation produces cleansing. (laughs) It keeps spreading because we... We have repented, which has led to thanksgiving, which leads us to invite other people who are now cleansing, and we're cleansing ourselves more because this crescendo is building, this cascade is increasing. Cleansing replaces defilement with divine order. We know that our lives are filled with cobwebs. Where do those even come from anyway? But as soon as we set our face on praise and on worshiping the Lord, There's a lot of cleansing that goes on. And cleansing requires intercession. Verses 17 to 20. The people were in a difficult strait. And we've referenced this already with reference to the Passover. They wanted to worship, but the law said you cannot celebrate the Passover, except in the first month. We're already in the second. We've addressed that. But you also can't celebrate the Passover without first being cleansed. And you're like, seriously? So we've got to go up to the temple, stand in line, to offer burnt offerings first so that we can go back over here and slaughter a lamb to celebrate the Passover, we're not going to make it in time. So again, are we cut off from God by, by procedures? And Hezekiah prays to the, the Lord for the people, and the scriptures say the Lord heals them, which implies something. Again, I don't want to make too much of this because we don't, we don't know exactly what the Lord did. But were the people falling sick as soon as they tried to engage in worship without the proper procedure in place? Because the holiness of God is strict. We've got to have the intercessor. Another emphasis on this. So cleansing requires the intercessor, just as we have seen before. Cleansing results in joy. No surprise that God's undeserved favor leads to an eruption of joy. The last text that we will look at, end of Second Chronicles 30, then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. Another seven? It's expensive, people. You know, you're, you're, you're renting hotels. Not really. Okay, I'm, I'm putting this in modern parlay. But, you know, you're, you're outside your country. You're renting hotels. You've all come up to Jerusalem. Where are you going to get food? You've got to pay for all this extra and so on. It doesn't matter. We want to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand. It's getting bigger. This just keeps getting bigger each time we hit animals offered. 
and 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel, the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel, the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. It's everybody. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Judah, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Cleansing brings unity and even more joy. (laughs) This is just not stopping It's not stopping. Note the emphasis on the whole assembly, the whole assembly, the whole assembly. And then he goes beyond it. He's like, okay, in case you missed the point, the whole assembly, even of the sojourners, people who were passing through Israel, who heard the message, who wondered, do you think maybe Israel's God would allow me to go up and worship him too? No. But Hezekiah said, we could all come. Okay, let's try it. Come on, sojourners, and all the sojourners in Judah as well, in this massive assembly, united. Their joy is spontaneous, their joy is contagious, and their joy is accepted. The Lord heard, and he accepted. Yes, you can come. The cascade of these two chapters is complete. I know it's small, but repentance leads to thanksgiving, leads to an invitation to others, leads to cleansing, leads to unity and great joy. But at the last moment, because I told you we were covering chapter 31 today as well. You go, seriously? Yep, here it is. Here's chapter 31. It's not actually a cascade. It's a spiral because chapter 31 starts over and the people start worshiping and repenting even more and then giving thanks and then inviting each other to join in greater unity and joy, and it continues on. In the winter, what we often want when we go out to play in the snow is a snowman. How do you get there? How do you get to a snowman? A little tiny packed snowball that you plop down and you start to roll. And God has designed in the process of spiritual activity cascades, or we could call them snowballs, growth in worship and praise that start with the humbleness of simple repentance. And you say, but there's so much garbage out there in the surrounding world. We can't do anything. Repent and let God take care of the rest of the cascade. Father, we're thankful for the testimony of your word. We're thankful that we have an intercessor, Jesus Christ, because one of the things that this passage has drawn attention to is our sin is great. In fact, it's greater than we can even realize. It's more odious, it's more disgusting, it's more filthy, and it's unsolvable except for an intercessor who stands in our place. Thank you that the one who is both atonement is the priest who makes the atonement. And he's also the priest who turns around and offers up prayers to God on our behalf so that we are acceptable to you. Lord, may we repent this week. May we believe you that when we repent, you will do good things in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, that great intercessor. Amen.